Welcome back to The Quiet Reformation, brought to you by Netzer.org. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information featured in today's episode. I'm Justin, here along with Tim. Our guest, Pastor Jim Simbola, talks to us today about Jesus renewing and reviving church leaders. Fan the flame. In other words, we're called to ministry, but unless we do it God's way, with God's power, using God's word, God's gospel, for God's glory, we're going to go down some rapid trails that are going to lead to discouragement and, and early burnout. Hi, everybody. So glad to have you joining us on the podcast today. Today, we have a special guest with us, someone who I've considered pastoral in my own life from a distance through his writing, through his teaching, through the conferences I've attended, through the stories of what God has done in his ministry, and really excited to have him with us on the podcast today. Pastor Jim Simbla from Brooklyn Tabernacle, who's been in ministry for many years, has so many great stories about what the Lord has done with his church there in Brooklyn. And uh, it's an incredible gift to have him with us today. So Pastor Simbla, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Well, it's an honor to be with you, Tim. Thank you for having me. Our initial connection that we had, Pastor Simbola, every now and then I go up to Brooklyn on a Tuesday night to be a part of one of your prayer gatherings, just to be refreshed myself. And I was on the way up there and prayed that as our ministry to pastors, that there would be a moment potentially where you would be able to speak into our pastors. And I prayed on the way up, Lord, if it's possible, just uh, bring a connection with Pastor Simbola. I saw at the end of the service, there was about 30 people lined up to talk to you at the end of the service. I said, this isn't it. So I went with my friends out and we were getting ready to leave and we were walking to a grocery store. We came out of the grocery store and you passed us on the street and mentioned something to us. I went back into the grocery store like a stalker to find you. <laughs> and, and I came up and it said to you, hey, I prayed that we could meet. Uh, is there a possibility that you could come and speak to pastors in, in our place? And you said the next Right before that you had met with your leadership team and came up with an idea, uh, had proposed an idea of something called 24-7, where you spend 24 hours with, or uh, seven hours with 24 pastors. And you said, you guys want to be the guinea pig. And I was like, praise the Lord. Thank you, God. And you came down and spoke. And not only was that a powerful time for many of us um, in, in thinking through how we're doing ministry and how we're seeking the Lord, but it also became kind of the foundation and platform and launch pad for the ministry with us down here in Southeastern Pennsylvania among the pastors. So just want to honor you for your obedience to the Lord to, 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 to go after that. Thanks for that. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no, I was happy to do it. And that's great how God had us meet. I remember that moment in the Brooklyn Fair grocery store and how we ran into each other. That was great. I'm uh, excited to talk about your book today. You've just released this new book and really excited to have the leaders that we work with go through that book. So part of the reason that I was hoping to have you on the podcast here was just so that we could talk about the book with the hopes that they'll take time to read through the book, meditate on it, reflecting with the Lord about their own ministry. So this book that you just released, Fan the Flame, can you just give us a little bit of background about why you wrote this book? What was on your heart as you went to write this? I went on March 8, 2020, down to Florida. Uh, we rent an apartment one block here from the church, but I have a home that my parents made possible many years ago, right 15 minutes from the Tampa airport. It's supposed to be a getaway. 
So we were getting away, which was rare because of our schedules. And we were going to go for five days. But the next day, pastors here and the board called me and said, don't get on a plane. Don't come back to New York. The church is shut down. Office shut down. School shut down. Bank shut down. Everything shut down. The uh, COVID-19 spike was amazing. And there were others to follow. So, you know, we didn't know how long we would be in Florida. We were blessed that we, you know, had a home there. But now what to do? So I started taping at my friend Ken Witten's church, uh, Idaho Baptist in Tampa. He gave me his videography team. I was taping Sunday messages, daily devotions, which have continued till now. And while I was there, I started being called by leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention, Assemblies of God, Church of God, all kinds of ministerial groups. And they asked, could they come over, maybe five at a time, to talk and to pray, to read the word together, give any advice I could. And that's where the discouragement level and the confusion level really hit me. And my heart went out to these pastors because, first of all, COVID affected all of us. But, you know, now we've got to the point where 62% of all the pastors in America say they would leave their positions of leadership tomorrow if they only could get a job somewhere with benefits to cover them. And the questions they raised and everything got me praying and thinking. So as I was studying and waiting on the Lord, Acts 20 kind of opened up to me in a new way. And using that as a kind of backdrop, Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders, where he takes, as it were, a spiritual selfie of his ministry with them for three years. I started to think and see and pray about, wait, wait, this guy went through all kinds of persecution, trial, tribulations, no written New Testament, no buildings, no money, no anything and no media presence, no anything. And how did he build these churches? And of course, not just in in Ephesus. And he kind of opens it up as he reviews with them how he did ministry. And that's where I came up with the verse from 2 Timothy, fan the flame. In other words, we're called to ministry, but unless we do it God's way, with God's power, using God's word, God's gospel, for God's glory, We're going to go down some rabbit trails that are going to lead to discouragement and and early burnout. You know, when I read the book, I I just felt like it hit the head of the nail of where pastors are right now. You, You know, we work with pastors and have had the same experience. Those who have been connected with other pastors really praying together have weathered the storm better because they've had one another and they've had a sense of the Lord. But those who have been more in isolation and who have been depending on themselves in this, are, are overwhelmed. You bring up the circumstances that pastors are facing right now. You acknowledge it. And I think it's really helpful how you just acknowledge the extenuating circumstances people have been experiencing, but it feels like you also stop short of allowing any kind of self-pity in that, because it seems like what you're actually calling us to is to look at that picture in Acts 20 of Paul and be aware of how much he was facing, what his circumstances were, So how does he handle those circumstances? So I had this question that was coming up during the reading of the book, which was, you were saying, Paul being aware of negative circumstances didn't keep him from pursuing the will of the Lord. And yet somehow right now, we've gotten to a place where we think that negative circumstances help determine the will of God. So 
if things are getting rough, well, it must be a closed door and we shouldn't be going that direction. So one of my questions for you was as, as pastors, as leaders, if negative circumstances aren't the means by which we discern the will of the Lord, how would you encourage pastors to discern the will of the Lord? Yeah, well, first of all, if, if you think of 2 Corinthians uh, around 11, chapters 11, 12, where Paul reviews all he's been through in the ministry. I mean, beat half to death, thrown in prison, cast into the open sea, stoned, beat, hit with rods, 39 lashes twice, I think. And he never mentions the word burnout or I'll quit. Think of what he went through and there's no word of discouragement. There's no word of, I got to stop doing this, or what? why is God permitting all this stuff to happen to me? So what the, what the same time that we're saying, wow, Lord, give us wisdom to navigate this COVID thing, at the same time, we have to say, wait a minute, how? what resources was he drawing on that he was like a soldier that came marching, victory after victory, not everyone got converted, but starting churches, and ordaining leadership. So that went to a deeper thing in me. I started thinking, maybe we're doing this sideways. Maybe the whole thing is off. Maybe what I saw growing up, in other words, most ministers, unfortunately, we, we try to replicate what we saw growing up or worse, or just as bad, some new church growth fad, some new formula, some new way to do skinny jeans and a fog machine look, you got to adapt to the culture. I got that. But in adapting to the culture and technology, we're losing the basic essence of the Christian ministry in many places. We're not preaching the gospel. There's no emphasis on prayer. We're not making converts, et cetera, et cetera. Now the average churchgoer goes 1.8 times a month. I mean, really, how do you develop ministry? How do you get everybody to serve? Here's the main point. Jesus did not say he's building my church. He's not building the Brooklyn Tabernacle. He's building his church. So the whole idea of having a vision for someone else's church is kind of unnerving to me. So I'm going to come up with a vision and I have to cast it and all of that. When many of the principles of it aren't even in the Bible as Jesus's vision for his church. For example, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You read the book of Acts and the letters that Paul wrote, and you see the, the importance of prayer. I had someone in Florida tell me, well, the model I'm following, prayer is not really important to us. We're following a different model. I'm like, good grief, what are you talking about? How could you have a model against the one in the Bible? But that's what's happening. So instead of us evangelizing the culture, I think in many places, the culture is evangelizing us. I noticed that uh, while you were writing, one of the things that you did is you kind of highlighted different ways that we've become self-dependent, uh, whether that's through our education and our knowledge, or whether that's our leadership skills or our strategy or any of those. And you continue to contrast that with, you know, where God's leading the church and you make it really clear. One of the places I, I felt like you really pounded in on the, in the book was to say, one of the things we most need right now is to remember that the Holy Spirit is the only one who can lead the church. In many circumstances, we've actually worked against the Holy Spirit because we've set up systems that inhibit the moving of the Holy Spirit. So then you mentioned uh, two things. One, the apostolic priority that you said in Acts 6-4. And then you also mentioned that the number one thing that the, that the Lord is looking for 
uh, the quality that he's most looking for is availability, not leadership, not wisdom, all of that. Can you just speak to that a little bit, what that looks like for a pastor? When Jesus was on the earth, as we know from the Gospels, he was in charge. If you would have gone to Peter and Capernaum or James and John and said, yo, how long are you guys going to be here? We don't know. How would we know that? When he moves, we move. When he stays, we stay. Kind of like the pillar of cloud and fire in the Old Testament that guided the Israelites. Because Jesus was in charge, obviously, Messiah. Now, he said, I'm going to go toward the end of his ministry before he died on the cross for our sins. I'm going to leave you, but it's better for you that I leave. Because unless I leave, I can't send the Holy Spirit. I don't think there's too many of us who really shared that deep conviction. It's better to lose the physical Jesus walking on water so we can have this invisible presence of the Holy Spirit. So I'm sending another helper. So at that point, Jesus put the Holy Spirit in charge of all matters pertaining to the Christian church. The Brooklyn Tabernacle is not my church. How could it be? I didn't die on a cross. I didn't raise from the dead. It's his church. And the Holy Spirit is in charge of missions, hiring, expansion of building. He's supposed to lead us because he's a lot smarter than all of us put together. But I think we've lost that simplicity. There's such an anti-supernatural, hyper-cessationist thing. Like Tozer said, the Holy Spirit could leave planet Earth and a lot of churches wouldn't notice it for three or four years because they they can do church without the Holy Spirit. And for where God has placed my wife and, wife and I in downtown Brooklyn, and I haven't been trained, and she is hasn't been um, formally trained in music, and we've been doing this for a while, we, we realized a long time ago, what chance would I have without the power and assistance of the Holy Spirit that I have to pray for and trust God that the Spirit will empower us and help us convict people of their sins so they can be one. But we've learned a way because of uh, church growth technicians of doing church without the Holy Spirit. And that's at the heart of what I call a part of the tragedy we're looking at right now in the Christian church. Yeah, that's just a powerful set of thoughts because I think that it's all foundational to the basic ministry. And that's what you're saying is that we've lost some of the essence because we subtly moved away from dependence on the Lord and got to ways where we could do church without him. I mean, Madison Avenue has invaded the church and corporate America has invaded. So you read books on leadership. They hardly mention prayer, the Holy Spirit, uh, as it's mentioned in the New Testament. And it's all about stuff that, you know, people from Apple and General Motors and uh, that, that they're into. And look, we should use wisdom and, and, and organize. And I'm all for that. I'm not anti-Diluvian uh, dinosaur uh, age uh, kind of person. But where's the, where are the converts? Where are the people and churches whose doors are open to everyone, no matter what race, what lifestyle? A few years ago, I was reading an article of a famous Christian leader who was being interviewed, that, you know, known for leadership. And the person was asked, what's different between meeting uh, that you would have in the marketplace or, you know, in, in the corporate world versus a meeting you have at your church. And he said, we open with prayer. You know, we say, we say a quick prayer before we get started. After that, you wouldn't notice anything different. And I remember just thinking, wow, that, that sounded like a confession, but it wasn't, <laughs> you know, for, for the average pastor who's been trained, who's kind of been in that mentality, 
who's wondering, I mean, one of the questions you leave us with at the end of this book, which I think is a powerful question at the end of this book, is you ask, what do we really want? And are we prepared to wait before the Lord until we receive it? Some pastor might be listening to, to this and say, okay, I've been thinking that I'm trying to follow Christ. But as I'm thinking about this, I'm not sure if I'm just trying to work for Christ or if I'm listening to Christ and responding to him. How would you help? How would you uh, invite a pastor to think and do some management of myself and say, am I really following Christ here? And what do I do if I'm not? Right, right. I think I think the key is, and this is where the danger comes, because we're so formulaic in our thinking. So I think getting back to the Bible and God alone with God, and then let God lead you. In other words, some pastor listening to me, I don't know where he's at. I don't know the spiritual temper of his, uh, temperature of his church. Remember in Revelation chapter two and three, Jesus wrote to seven churches, but the messages were all different. Why? Because no two churches are alike. So when people say, what's God saying to the church? Well, beside love one another and trust in me, I mean, it depends what church you go to. A leader has to get along with the Lord and say, Lord, how do you assess my church? Because Jesus in, the, in those letters says, said always, I know. Not, not what the public thinks, not what your peer, peers think or denomination thinks. That's irrelevant. Because at the end, we're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. So, Lord, how do you evaluate this church? And where are we weak? And, and hurting you, grieving you, and not being as efficient as we could be in building the kingdom. Show me what to do first in my life, and then in my leadership, in my preaching, in our points of emphasis. And with an open Bible and an open heart and an open heaven, God's not going to help someone who does that. Early on in the ministry here, decades ago, when I began, less than 20 people, lots of discouragement rundown building, $85 first offering, tithes and offerings, which sounds like a strange phrase to go with $85. And didn't know how to preach. My sermons were so bad, people were converting to other religions during my sermons. All those discouragement, I, I got fed up with being fed up, and I saw nothing happening. And I got desperate for God. And as he's listening to me today, I was walking one afternoon, on a Tuesday, knowing that there would be two or three or four people in the midweek service and said, God, I can't do this. I can't, I can't believe you put Carol and I in downtown Brooklyn, no crack yet, but lots of heroin, alcoholism, homelessness, and gangs to do what? Not bear spiritual fruit. I'm not talking about running numbers. To make your goal higher attendance is a formula for disaster. Both before God and then in your own spirit, your own life, because now you've left the uh, path that he's put us on in the New Testament. And I got desperate, Tim, and I said to God, I'm not being melodramatic, God, if you're not going to change me and use me, then take my life. I have a baby, I know. Carol, I know you can take care of Carol and the baby, but I can't live this way. Just what? pounding the Bible, reading about what God did back when the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the Welsh Revival or whatever, or pounding verses, look what God did in the New Testament, and then see what? No converts? 
no spirit of prayer, no love, no people loving the word of God, no people becoming more like Christ. I mean, I just couldn't take that. I couldn't take that thought. And you know what? When anyone listening, including you and me, when we get desperate with the Lord and say, I'm not following Jim Symbolist methodology. I'm not following anyone's vision. God, it's your church. Show me how to do this. And I can't believe that God's not going to help someone. Yeah, there's a couple stories that you tell in this book that put on really good display what it looks like to stay attentive in the moment. So not just overall for my ministry, but in the moment. You talk about when you're preaching, you're praying as you're preaching. They're like, things aren't working right now. And you're saying, and God does great things like in the middle of a service as you're praying and he leads you. And, you know, of course, many pastors are not used to being that much in the moment. That kind of desperation that you had how do you maintain that as you, you know, you've on outward metrics. Now you look at Pastor Jim Simley, you've written books, man, you have a big church. Like, yeah, there's a lot going on, you know, but you, part of what you're saying in Fan the Flame is maintain this fire, maintain it. And at one point you actually said in our preaching, if we're not hearing from the Lord, if we're not seeking the Lord and hearing from the Lord, then what are we actually preaching? We're going to end up preaching false gospel. And you said, particularly if it's a message you've preached before, and it hit me between the eyes because I lead a, a network now. So lots of times I'm at a different church, a few Sundays in a row preaching the same message. And I'm like, oh, by the third time I've preached that message, am I still seeking the Lord for it? And so I wonder how do you maintain, you were at a desperate spot circumstantially back then, but how do you maintain that fire and that pursuit of God when, you know, there's, there's some stability now? It's not so much false doctrine, as you said, that people can get into when we re-preach sermons or we get mechanical. It's just that there's no life to it. Water can come in liquid form and refresh people, or you can serve them a block of ice <laughs> okay. and it's the same H2O. <laughs> Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, the great expositor, said, you know, when re you re-preach a sermon, you should spend more time alone with the Lord. Otherwise, you fall in the trap that the sermon works. Oh, I preach this. Ah, right. This, th this thing works. Nothing works but God. No hymn. Amen. No sermon. No anything. There has to be that life-giving flow from the Holy Spirit as we preach. But to answer the main question there is this. I went out last night to eat with a visiting pastor and his wife and Carol and some others. And there was a woman who was brought along, going to be baptized in a week from one of the churches that grew out of our church. And her mother was a heroin addict. I don't know what she's been through, but her entire face is a tattoo. Her entire face and neck. Or lady comes up to me a few weeks ago and says, I won't leave unless you pray for me. And I prayed for her. And then she says, here, take this and hands me her crack pipe. So as you mingle with people and you see the needs around you, how could that not stir you? In fact, true confession, I live with predominant sense of failure all the time. Because, yeah, we have thousands and thousands of people coming to our church. And we used to have, you know, uh, 14 on Sunday. But look at this borough. Look at this city. Look at this world. Look at Oxycontin. Look at what's happening here uh, in the streets here. All the mental illness, all the people lonely, the people in the shelters. We're, we're for Christmas bringing in uh, a couple hundred people who live in shelters. 
we just had uh, some uh, ladies brought in from domestic violence shelter. And a couple of them came forward to receive Christ. How could you mingle and be with those people and have the Holy Spirit hopefully helping you to see them the way God sees them, to feel what God feels? If you just mix with humanity and, and the Spirit is, is guiding you, you're going to feel a burden. And that's what, keeps, that's what keeps me going. I said to these people at that meal last night, I said, look, I don't want to meet the president. I don't want to go to Buckingham Palace. I don't want to drive a Rolls Royce. I don't want to be famous. I don't want to be anything. I just want to go to bed at night and know that someone's getting baptized next Sunday and their life has been saved, not just here, but for eternity. And God used me in some small way to do it. That's what I live for. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, this is a good word for all the pastors listening. For I've wanted to come to you many times, but Satan hindered me. Oh, interesting passage there, the mystery of how would Satan hinder someone like the Apostle Paul? But he said it happened. So I want to be with you for what is my joy? What is my crown? What is my hope when Jesus returns? Are you not my joy? Are you not my crown? So all we can bring. Look, we live. In, we are in a nice theater now here, our church home, and it was built in 1918. It's really nice. It's all going to be burnt up. My wife in her office, 50 feet from here, uh, has six Grammy awards that she's won. What value do they have? They're all going to be burnt up. Everything's going to disappear. The only thing I can bring to the Lord are people. That goes for you. That goes for any pastor listening. That's what keeps me going. The, the constant sense of need that's all around me. One of the things that I have appreciated about the book and about your ongoing ministry is that you've consistently called people to carve out time and space, regardless of all the demands, get in the word, get with the Lord, make it first priority. But then there's also the stories about how that prayerfulness is not only in that quiet time set aside, but it's constant in the midst of ministry. And so there's a constant dependence on the Lord. For those who are listening today, I want you to read the book because there's stories that Pastor Simbola tells, um, a number of different stories that are really profound. And, and listen, listen, all the royalties for the book go to the church. So I'm pushing the book, doing this interview, want to promote it because I want to help pastors, leaders, serious Christians keep on keeping on. And the best is yet to come. God has great plans for all of us because we're all in the same body, you know? There are no denominations to God. God wouldn't know a Calvinist if you pointed it at him out to the God, because there are no uh, there are no evangelicals. There's no charismatics. There's no Baptists. There's no assemblies of God. There's no Presbyterian. There's just one body. We're all in it. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, Ephesians, one body. So we got to root for each other, encourage each other. And I commend you for your your program, and that you're trying to uh, lift up the hands of maybe leaders who are, are in the midst of all these pressures, kind of like, how, how much longer can I go on? Come on, you got to fan the flame. That's it. God put a flame inside of you. Now ask him to fan it so it gets burning real bright. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks so much for joining us. It's a great message. We all need the encouragement to keep seeking the Lord. Thank you. And you've been a great encouragement to many of us. We know that, that you taking this time is special for us. So thanks for that. And everybody, make sure you read not only this book, Fan the Flame, but if you have not read Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire yet, 
that's a must read. When, when I was doing local church pastoring, you weren't allowed to be in leadership if you hadn't read that book yet. That was like standard because it sets the tone for understanding what it looks like to see the, the transforming power of the gospel touching people's lives. So thank you again, Pastor Simbola. We really appreciate you being here and appreciate your ministry. Love you, brothers. Love you. Keep up doing that great work you're doing. And if you ever get near New York, both of you, are, uh, I'll buy you cheesecake. That's all I can offer you. Awesome. All right. Thanks again, Pastor Simbola. Blessings. For those listening in, make sure you stick around. Tim and I will be back in a few moments with some closing reflections. to read Jim's book, and I know you read it as you were preparing for the interview. I have a couple quick follow-up questions based out of some of the things Jim shared. Sounds good. Let's do it. Jim at one point mentioned apostolic priority. Can you unpack a little bit about what he meant by that and if there were any stories that he used to kind of illustrate a touch point on apostolic priority? Yeah, that's good clarification. That word apostolic obviously is a pretty loaded word. When he's talking about that, he's talking about in Acts 6, when the apostles appoint deacons to take care of waiting on the tables and take care of basic duties in the church. That's so that they, as the apostles, can put their time into the ministry of the word of God and prayer. And so what he's saying is, is that the priority of the apostles, those right at the, at the core of the church, like the leaders right at the center of what's happening in the church, their priority has to be that they're following God, not just in doing actions to help do the work of God, but they're staying really tuned in to God by being in a place of prayer, being totally dedicated to the word of God. And so what, his, what he's encouraging us to think of is that as leaders, as spiritual leaders, the first priority of the apostles and our first priority needs to be to keep very clear communication lines between us and God through the word of God and prayer so that we can be led by the Lord. Yeah. Um, and he uses a bunch of examples in the book. And this is why it is good to read the book because there's just, yeah. you know, how helpful it is when you just hear like story after story and it illustrates it. And so I can't do justice to that without our listeners reading the book. But there's one that was really special to me to read because I was actually at Brooklyn Tabernacle when this went down. Oh, were you featured in the book? Was there a, a quote from Tim Deering in the book? <laughs> no, I wasn't. Actually, when, when Jim and I were talking about it, I told him that I was there and he had no idea that I was there when this happened. Essentially, what happened was it, it was kind of a random thing where the Holy Spirit had put something on his heart to pray for a situation in Pakistan based out of something that he had been hearing and reading. And so they went after prayer for this in their service. And while they're in the service praying for it, someone comes up and, and talks to them about the fact that it was, it was a, a, a woman whose husband was a pastor in Pakistan comes up and, and shares Hey, my husband's over there. And they're like, what? Or, you know, and it was kind of crazy. Well, then it turns out the whole story develops to the point where 
There's stuff going on in Pakistan. There's all sorts of problems happening as they're having prayer meeting. They're on the phone with him live praying. God answers the prayer in real time while the church is praying for it. And it was just like mind boggling uh, wow. the way the whole thing went down. Um, literally to watch God answering prayer in real time. I'll, I'll, the details of it are, of course, the most beautiful part of it, but it's important to just read it and to enjoy it. It's incredible to watch when we're being sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, how God can really do amazing things across the globe in real time. You know, Jim Cimbala at that point was yielding to the apostolic priority by keeping his ear tuned to something going on in the moment. And then responding to that, which equaled this this impromptu prayer thing that then was happening in real time across across the world uh, uh, in a place of intercession. Yes. So the, the Spirit spoke to him in that place. A lot of times, though, we are in a team setting and uh, the Spirit is speaking not just to Tim Deering, or to Justin Boyer, but to a bunch of us, maybe different things or nuanced things or a fuller picture of things. So when we're trying to follow the lead of the spirit, how does that work in community then? Like what are some of the, the things to be aware of that it's not just my direct line with God, but it's also taking into consideration that God speaks to more than just me? Yeah, that's a great question. I should turn that back to you, Justin, because we're on staff together. So I should ask, does this actually work in a staff meeting for us or something? <laughs> <you know? Right. laughs> Acts 15, when we get into the Jerusalem council where, you know, there's a real need for the Holy Spirit to lead the church. They're looking for direction about this. They don't have scripture to necessarily clearly guide them in this direction. And they're trying to interpret Old Testament scriptures about what's happening with the Gentiles here in the new covenant. As Paul comes back and is sharing with the council, what's going on with the Gentiles, they're trying to discern what all they need to do. And Peter and James are, are uh, among the Jerusalem council trying to figure out together what to do. And there's this verse that says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And that phrase, what seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us is like, there's this partnership idea that the Holy Spirit is working through the church and among the church in a way to reveal his manifold wisdom. And anybody who's familiar with what we do within Netzer has probably heard us talk about the manifold wisdom, because we believe that the scriptures are really clear in Corinthians that to each one is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good, and that the Lord distributes his gifts among people. And so we tend to see from different angles. And uh, a big principle in the New Testament when it comes to the Holy Spirit leading the church is this picture about when two or three come together and they're in agreement. And what's a big deal about agreement is that I might be following the Lord and seeing things from a certain angle and being led by the Holy Spirit. You might It might be the same thing for you, but we're seeing from different angles. And that conversation between us where we begin to really listen to one another and hear from one another and, and say, I believe you're hearing from the Holy Spirit and I'm hearing from the Holy Spirit. So then putting those pieces together allows it not just to be your uh, one word that you have and one word that I have, but together with others in community, it starts to form a sentence and that the Holy Spirit's leadership among us can be really detailed and really robust if we learn to not only listen to and attend to the Holy Spirit within me, but also among us. And, and we think that's really important when it comes to, to leadership in the church.
that reminds me of the psalm where it talks about like all the tribes of Israel were gathering together to come and to worship the Lord. And I found this really cool creative thing that this guy did where he took the names of the tribe and he basically narrated them together into the short paragraph of praise to the Lord. So like every tribe's name meant something. And that what he did is he took all of those meanings and he made it into this poetic prose narrative piece that gets to your point, like each one of those names or meaning might be significant, but then when you thread them all together and they're woven all together, there's a bigger picture of God's glory and of God's story. And sometimes you can have uh, a part of the story missing if you're not showing up or if you're not listening to uh, the voice of the Lord through another brother or a sister. Yeah, that reminds me of another story in the book that Jim talks about where he's actually in, in a setting where he's listening for the Holy Spirit and really trying to stay in tune with where the Lord's leading. And they're in this really beautiful spot in the service that they're in, but he's just kind of waiting on the Lord and he, and he doesn't really sense anything from the Lord, but he knows like they're in a very sensitive moment and it's kind of in a, in a setting where they're looking for leadership. And finally he, he just says to the Lord, like, I don't want to mess this moment up, you know? And he senses that he's supposed to go down to this lady who's in the front of the church and hand her the microphone. He's like, what? He's like, you know, like as a pastor, you're like, this is such a weird moment, right? Yeah, as a th that gives me heart palpitations thinking yeah. about from a planning a service standpoint. Yeah, and and that's where he's at. And I mean, they're kind of a little more accustomed than many of us are, but still, sure. he sure. he was talking about it like it was a weird moment. So he walks down, and the funny thing is, is this woman she'd been sitting there worshiping. She had had a strong sense that she was supposed to say something, but she had never said anything in church before felt very inappropriate about it. Like, was like, what am I going to do? Walk on stage? You know, is that like, so, and she said, the only way that I'm saying anything is if he hands me this, mic. It, like if pastor symbol, it comes down here and hands me the mic, you know? And sure enough, she's sitting there eyes closed worshiping and he taps her on the shoulder and hands her the mic, you know? And he said, she just began to worship the Lord and just pray things out that were uh, so what was needed in the moment. And, you know, just another one of those cool things. Well, for, for in that moment, it's not his voice that needed to be heard. It was her voice that needed to be heard. So even though he was sensing something from the Holy Spirit, it was in conjunction with something she was sensing and that learning to be sensitive to one another. And that's kind of a, a dramatic situation in a worship service. But there's much more subtle ways in conversations that we do this when we're listening for the Holy Spirit in one another. And I think that that's important on all levels of leadership, whether that's in a staff meeting or whether that's a husband and a wife trying to figure out, like, what are we doing with our family? You know, how are we handling this situation with our kids? You know, and, and a couple of high school kids who are trying to figure out how to handle difficult situation they're dealing with, learning to listen to one another as they pray and get the collective wisdom of God revealed through one another. Okay, one last question before we head out here. Pastor Simbola mentioned a couple times how his training was kind of on the fly. It was spirit-led. It was based out of calling, and I deeply respect that, even as somebody that has had a non-traditional education myself within the church. To some degree, over the past you know five, six, seven years, you've kind of had questions about the academy, about the Christian academy, about seminary about the overlap or the integration of that with church life. 
I don't know what kind of thoughts do you have on the on the back end of the interview, especially where we don't want to idolize our intellect. We want to always rely on the spirit. But where does the academy have a rightful place or how do those things integrate a little bit? So it's been it's been uh, over 20 years I've been wrestling. My freshman year at Bible college, I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, this is helping me. The things I'm learning right now are helping me see the scriptures in a way I never saw them before. And I wish I could learn this in church, like in, in local church in high school. I wish I'd learn it. Whether or not I was at a spot where I could really hear that or not in high school, I don't know. But I do know that even adults weren't learning what I was learning and that this scripture that we've been given is such a precious gift. It, there is a wealth, just an absolute wealth, a mysterious, deep well inside of the scriptures. And when we're given the right tools by which to understand the text, oh my goodness, it just becomes such a worshipful thing to see the beauty of God in new ways in the text. And so because of that, I'm, I'm a strong proponent of having the right tools by which to engage the scriptures. And I think that we can get those things at seminary, at Bible college, at higher education. It doesn't need to be there. There's, there's various ways we can do that. And Pastor Simbola is a great example of a guy who dives deep into the text and understands so much about it, but he didn't go to seminary and he didn't you know, go into higher education. So you don't need to go that direction to do it. And, and I would love to see more and more of the local church helping people have those tools. The danger that I think Pastor Simbola is speaking to, which is important, is to say that even more beautiful than the Bible is the God that the Bible speaks about. And sometimes we can begin to see the Bible as kind of cold, detached, and deal with it as an ac academic text and forget that it's a living word spoken by a God who's alive with us. And what he's saying is, you know, we need to be present with God and the scriptures. We need to be totally engaged in the scriptures, and totally engaged in prayer, but in a way that allows God to be real and present not just for us personally, devotionally, but also in a way that allows that scripture to speak to the people who we minister to in real time. And sometimes if we're too stuck in the academic formulas by which we look at the text, then we're not allowing it to be alive in real time. And we're not getting our own Holy Spirit inspired thoughts from it. We only become you know, channels for what the commentary says or whatever. And we're not uh, doing the hard work of saying, Jesus, move through me in a way that allows this spirit to, to come to life through the text on behalf of our people. And I think that's what he's really trying to get at.